And Jeremiah started that book out by saying what was about to happen to the city of Jerusalem, the Jews, and then went through all that had to be gone through, and suddenly it was a done deal. Jerusalem had fallen. The walls were broken. People were carried off into captivity. And all the things that he had preached and taught had happened. And we have come to see that Jeremiah is an end-time prophecy that's referring, first of all, to the church, and secondarily to this nation and the nation of the Jews. And there are more Jews in New York City and Miami by far, and San Francisco and L.A., than there are in the country of Israel. So, if this is to be reenacted again upon the Jews, as well as the rest of Israel at this point, uh, it has to come here as well as the Middle East. But you know, after all this happened, people sat back and wondered, how could this be? Before leaving the writings of Jeremiah, because it said at the end of chapter 52, these are thus far the words of Jeremiah. But Jeremiah had something more to say, and that is in the book of Lamentations. And I don't think that we should leave Jeremiah without hearing the rest of what he had to say and see the application for today. So let's go, if you will, to the book of Lamentations right after Jeremiah. And here is a statement or a question or an exclamation, maybe both. How does the city sit solitary that was full of people. How could this have happened to God's own capital city? God had chosen Israel down through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and worked with them for many, many centuries. How could something like this happen to God's own people? His city. Not the Chinese cities or anybody else's. God's city. Didn't we have somewhat the same reaction when worldwide started falling apart? How could this have happened to us? How could this happen to God's one and only true church? However you might have put it, the question was in probably every mind and on every lip. How could this have happened? Most still have not found the answer, but Jeremiah does a very good summary of his own book and of the history that had just transpired to the city of Jerusalem. How could it happen? How did she become as a widow? She had been married to Christ. Everything looked good. And then along came the prophets and said things are falling apart and they're going to fall apart. You're going to be taken captive. And it's like her family, her husband, everything was just swept away and nothing left. Sitting alone, desolate, lonely, frustrated. Which is what happens to widows. She that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces, how has she become a slave? How is she now giving tribute to others when others paid tribute to her? This nation is headed in the same direction and the same questions and same statements will be made. How has she become a slave? Can you imagine the perplexity in the minds and faces of Americans when they see this happen to our country? 
and how hard it will be for them to understand. How could America come to this? Just as we said, how could the church come to this? So this story is parallel again with God's people, the church, the spiritual Jews, and with God's physical Israel and the Jews. She weeps sore in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. Out of all of our allies, out of all of our so-called friends, there will be none to comfort us, none to care. Just as there's been no one to comfort or care for the church. No, other churches saw the church coming apart out in the world. Did they come to our aid? Did they care? We had been an offbeat, strange religion to them anyway. Why would they care? All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Have you noticed events in the Middle East have stepped up, ratcheted very high the last few days, and our stock market's dropped over 400 in the last three days, and uh, things are looking very scary and tenuous in a world today that we observe. And it's a lot more frightening today than it was a week ago, because we don't know how fast it will escalate or whether it will back off again, or this time just keep on getting worse until what we're reading about right here will happen to this country just as surely as it happened to the church. Judah has gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude. She dwells among the heathen. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. Try to get away, try to escape, and you can't. We would have loved to have escaped what happened to the church, but we can't, couldn't. The ways of Zion do mourn, because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests die, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Pretty good picture of the church today. You know, we used to have the big feasts, and we'd have the screens, and Herbert Armstrong coming on the thing, and then we'd have the young ambassadors, and all those films, and the feast was a big deal. You know, you might have 10, 12, 15 thousand people at one site. It just seemed such a huge thing and, and kind of exciting and inspiring to see that many people who agreed, essentially, coming together. There's always something to truly look forward to. And now what do you see? Twenty here, thirty there, five over here, maybe a few hundred. In the case of one or two organizations, they might have feasts of two or three thousand, but it's certainly not like it used to be. Her adversaries are the chief, her enemies prosper. Even worldwide, gone back into the world, in some respects, seems to be doing better than those who clung to the truth and were scattered anyway. Of course, they're going downhill too, but, uh, you know, a lot more people stayed there. More and more left, but more stayed there at first than left probably the other way now. For the multitude of her transgressions. Okay, we're seeing then the beginning of the cause and effect here of why this happened to us. How did it happen? How does the city sit solitary? Well, what did Jeremiah say before it ever happened to Jerusalem? 
We must repent, we must change, we must grow. And they didn't do it, and God visited, visited it upon them. He's done the same with us, and he's about to do it to our nation. From the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like deer that find no pasture, and they are gone without strength before the pursuer. Where is the drive, the energy, the power to do anything? It's gone. It's, it's departed. And we're not beautiful like we used to be with all the campuses and all the jet airplanes and all the fine things that we had that were so desirable. It's all just, poof, disappeared. How could it happen so easily? Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries all her desirable things that she had in the days of old. We lamented when we saw the auditorium being turned over to heathen and so on because it had been built and dedicated to the great God and now it's in the world. Gone. None did help her. The adversary saw her and did mock at her Sabbaths. Weekly Sabbaths, holy days. Now that's been done to the church, but it's about to be done in far greater consequence than so far. Because when the New World Order and the false prophet take over, God's Sabbaths will be in very, very low esteem and will be, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm getting old. They'll be made... Uh, Illegal, I guess is a good enough word. Verse 8, Jerusalem has grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. All that honor her despise her, because they have seen her nakedness. What was our sin? You know, we can look back in history and see Jerusalem's sin, but ours was thinking we were spiritually clothed when we were not, and our nakedness could be seen. Laodiceanism. Yes, she sighs and turns backward. Her filthiness is in her skirts. She remembered not her last end. Therefore, she came down wonderfully or hugely or devastatingly. She had no comforter. The Holy Spirit from God is our comforter. And God withdrew to one degree or another his spirit, his comfort, and allowed us to be demolished just as he is about to do with our nation. She has no comforter. O Eternal, behold my affliction, for the enemy has magnified himself. The adversary has spread out his hand upon all her desirable things. For she has seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary, whom you did command that they should not enter into your congregation. God says we're to separate the clean from the unclean. We are not to allow the unclean to come into the congregation, and yet who took over the church? Unclean Gentiles, unconverted, took it right back to Protestantism and set it on its stand in Babylon, as Zechariah 5 points out. All her people sigh. They seek bread. Remember Amos, about partial famine and then total famine? And how it's so hard to find truth today. I've talked to some people recently who have gone through hundreds of organizations trying to find truth being preached. And they said they had 75 more to go through of all that they could find to check them out. 
to find where the truth truly is today. They said they might stop with us. That's scary, in a way, because they found, they said, food to make them grow for the first time in eight years of searching. Is it hard to find real truth today? Yes, it is. It doesn't make us any better than anyone else either. We need to understand that. But God somehow, some way, God blessed us with some insight and understanding that many are missing. And I think part of it is that we just, He let us see our spiritual nakedness. He let us see our faults and our needs, which most people in the church today are not willing to look at. They won't admit that there's anything wrong with them. But us? You know, why at a time, you know, there's a time for everything, as Solomon said. Time for joy, a time for sorrow, a time to lift up, a time to cast down. This is a time for humbling. This isn't a time, when you read scriptures like this, for any of us to be self-proclaiming ourselves as apostles or prophets or the man of God or whatever. It's not time for that. It's a time for humbling. It's a time for repentance. And yet, how much of that do you hear in the churches around the world? We preach that, but we have to do it, too. You know, I don't, I don't go through a day, I don't think I ever have in my life gone through a day without sinning. I don't think there's a day that has gone by that I did not think the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, or offend somebody in some form or fashion. Doubt if it's ever happened. Hope it will, but it hasn't happened yet. So, if you're like me, why should we proclaim ourselves as the greatest church or the best? No, this is a time for us to humble ourselves and admit our wrong and do something about it. All the people sigh. They seek bread. They've given the desirable things for food to relieve the soul. People travel, they go here, they go there. They spend their money trying to find truth. And it's hard to find these days. See, O eternal, and consider, for I am become vile. Now, this is an analogy of the church and of the nation, and also Jeremiah's feelings, because he too recognized that he had growing and overcoming to do. So he says, for I am become vile. Now, there is a benchmark and a statement that we need to understand and relate to. Because it seems that all the churches are trying to hold themselves up in front of each other and say, we're the greatest, we're the prettiest, we're the finest. Instead, we need to look at ourselves and say, I'm vile. I loathe myself. I loathe the way I think, the way I react, some of the things I say, some of the things I do. That should be our attitude. Because compared to God, what are we? You know, it's not wise for the churches to compare churches with other churches. We must all compare ourselves with God. And as individuals, or as a group, or as a church, we're not anywhere near like God, are we? We lack a long, long way. Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like my sorrow which is done to me, wherewith the eternal has afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. 
God is not unaware of his church. He is not unaware of us. How could this kind of sorrow, this kind of dispersal, this kind of destruction occur to God's people? And yet in this verse, it says, God has afflicted us. And God is going to afflict our nation because of sin. People all around the church have different explanations of why this has occurred to the church. Herbert Armstrong was a false prophet, or, uh, you know, many different reasons. The devil did it. Well, the devil couldn't have done it if God had not sicked him on us. God is behind it. He says so, right here. From above has he sent fire into my bones, and it prevails against them. He has spread a net for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. Now, if God has done that, and he calls his church, his people, the apple of his eye through the Bible, that he loves us very dearly, cares for us, well, then why would he do this to us? Let's read on. It becomes clearer and clearer as he explains. The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. He's hanging on to the bands of our transgressions. He has not turned loose of them in that sense. We're not under God's grace and good favor. We're, he is holding our sins in one sense over our head right now. He says he'll forgive us in one day at another place. But right now, he's holding our feet to the fire. He wants a response. He has made my strength to fall. The Eternal has delivered me into their hands, for whom I am not able to rise up. No matter how hard we try, it seems, as, as churches, as God's people around the world, nothing works. Nothing good seems to come. The gospel doesn't get preached in any way that is effective. People aren't coming into the churches. People are dying. People are not being healed. All kinds of troubles, trials, and tribulations are upon us, and it's God's hand that's doing it. You would think it would be time to deeply consider why. Why? And if you want the heat to come off, you have to have the proper responses. It's really that simple. Difficult to do. Because we are carnal, and we are human, and we do make mistakes. And it's hard for us to change. But God is going to cause us to change or die. That's, that's just the bottom line. We should be, of all people on earth, the most thankful people there are. God is about to destroy over 90% of the population of the earth through Satan and other means. He has leveled the church. And do I deserve to know what's going on? Do I deserve to have an insight into why this has happened? No. I may have been one of the worst. But through God's mercy, he's given us knowledge and understanding 
And with knowledge and understanding comes opportunity to do something about it and get God's hand off our neck and have him happy and pleased with us again. So out of all the people that walk the face of this earth, you and I today have more knowledge than 99.999% of them, including those in the church. And it's not because we're bright or smart. We're not, and I'm certainly not. But God has given us opportunity to change and to cause us to be pleased. Us to be pleasing to Him. But we can't get up on our own, can we? The Eternal is trodden underfoot, all my mighty men in the midst of me. What's happened to the ministry, all those powerful evangelists we looked up to? Knocked down flat, gone. Most of them now dead. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as in a wine press, even physically with our young people in our families. It's hard to find mates. Most are not being called into the church and even converted at this point. So on a spiritual level, it's a very, very difficult time for us dealing with our families. And on a national level, we're going to have the young people killed or taken into slavery. For these things I weep. My eye, my eye runs down with water, because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. There's just no helping it. It just fell apart right around us, all over us. And there's no helping it. And we cry out to God, and sometimes it seems like our prayers aren't really even answered. You know what? Let's keep reading. God refuses to hear some of them. That's the condition we're in. People say, well, why doesn't God hear an answer? It's not his purpose right now. It's not his purpose. We need to understand that. And we want to change things so that it becomes his purpose to hear our prayers and answer them. I mean, we're in this fix. How are we going to get out of it? What are we going to do about it? When you find yourself upside down in a well, you either totally panic and die of a heart attack, or you begin to think, how am I going to get out of this mess? Can I climb back up the rope? Can I holler? Can I, how am I going to deliver myself? And we're in trouble in the church, and this nation is in trouble. How do we get delivered? There is no delivering the nation. God said, don't even pray for it. It's too late. won't happen. It's too late for the church. Already knocked down and fallen apart. It's a few individuals who are going to do something about it. A tithe, a remnant, will do something about it. You and I have opportunity to be part of that. How thankful we ought to be. Even in the trouble we're suffering, we ought to be so thankful that God has revealed to us the answers. What needs to be done? Verse 17, Zion spreads forth her hands and there is none to comfort her. Where are you going to look for comfort? Where are you going to find comforting answers today on a spiritual level? A few and far between. 
The Eternal has commanded concerning Jacob that his adversaries should be round about him. God has caused our enemies to come around about us. He is going to use them to destroy us, just as he used Raider and Tekach and all those to destroy the church. Jerusalem is a minstrous woman among them, not, not at the moment desirable. The Eternal is righteous. God is righteous. For I have rebelled against his commandment. Hear, I pray you, all people, and behold my sorrow. He says, look, see what has happened. My virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. I call for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders gave up the ghost in the city. Might as well have just all fallen over and died because they weren't able to help or do anything. And we have a ministry today that is basically barking dogs without teeth. They can't bite, can't warn, can't show, can't tell the people what they need to hear so that they might recover from this mess. There's no one to holler down in the well and say, I'm bringing help. Because they don't know what's going on either. So they were walking like dead men in the city. Some physically died, but they were as good as dead. While they sought their food to relieve their souls. Has anything changed overall in the church? It's still pray and pay in most organizations. It's still, I am the one, anointed one from God, that will bring you salvation and guarantee you go to a place of safety because we're the only Philadelphians. That is heard over and over ad nauseum across the land. And that is what is going to be presented in most organizations and most congregations this very day today, God's Sabbath. Every minister, almost, in some form or another, is going to tell his congregation I'm okay, and you're okay, we're the Philadelphians. That is what they preach and teach. Whether they say it directly or not, it's there in attitude. While they seek to please their own souls. Behold, O Lord. He says, look, God, please look, for I am in distress. That's often the way we approach God, isn't it? Look, God, we're in trouble here. I'm in trouble. My bowels are troubled. My heart is turned within me. I didn't want to come here today and even talk about this because of the way I was feeling. So maybe it was the right mood to try to get across what Jeremiah is trying to tell us here. For I have grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword bereaves, at home there is as death. Everywhere you look, you see spiritual destruction in the church, and now we're seeing the dangers mounting very quickly against this country from within and from without. They have heard that I sigh. There is none to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Most Religions were relieved to see Herbert Armstrong's Worldwide Church of God go down. And most people on earth are going to be glad to see America go down. They're jealous, they're envious, 
They're hateful. And she finally got hers. It's going to be the response. And we're all going to help accomplish it. Then we'll party and be happy about it, except that, uh uh-oh, our money left. Now what do we do? So they'll lament that part of it, but they're not going to be unhappy to see us go, except for the poverty it's going to bring to the merchants. They have heard that I sigh. Let's see, I've read that. I'm glad you've done it. You will bring the day that you have called, and they shall be like me, downcast, just as Jeremiah was. See, he told them all along, this is going to happen. They didn't believe him. It didn't change anything. And then it happened. Let all their wickedness come before you, and do to them as you've done to me for all my transgressions. For my sighs are many, and my heart is thanked. Jeremiah was going through it, just like they were. He felt the same sorrow. And every one of us should. Chapter 2. How has the Eternal covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger? It's like he's put a cloud between us and him. Can't clearly see God at this point. And he's put a cloud there because he doesn't want to look down on us. He doesn't want to see what he sees. Is this depressing? I I suppose I could talk happy, happy here a while, but... I mean, we are upside down in a well. So, let's see what God has to say about it and and what the response ought to be, what the causes are. I, I mean, if we got a problem, we need to figure out what it is and find a solution. We have to do it as individuals, and we have to do it as a group. got this cloud in his anger, and cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel, and remembered not his footstool in the day of his anger. He'll remember at some point, but from all intents and purposes as we look at it, man, the sky fell in. Why? The Eternal has swallowed up all the habitations of Jacob and has not pitied all the congregations been a major change in the church. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. How many times am I going to emphasize he in this chapter, I wonder? And by the time we get done with this chapter in chapter 3, it ought to be very, very abundantly clear who is behind what is happening to us. He has cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy, and he burned against Jacob like a flaming fire which devours round about. When God decides to destroy something, he's pretty thorough. He's good at it. And he's not done. We've not seen three major ministries destroyed in one month yet, but it's coming, still prophesied. So the destruction we've seen in the church is not finished. I hope you and I repent sufficiently that we aren't destroyed too. Because we're in just as much danger as anyone else. Some days I'd like to just crawl in a hole and curl up and die. Because I look at myself and it's not a very pretty picture. 
But that's the way God wants us to look at ourselves right now. He wants us to see our mistakes. He wants us to see our faults and our weaknesses. And not just so that we can torment ourselves. He wants us to do something about them. So he has bent his bow like an enemy, verse 4. He stood with his right hand as an adversary and slew all that were pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion. He poured out his fury like fire. The Eternal was an enemy. It's like God is our enemy. I mean, if you were in the city of Jerusalem when all this happened, and you thought, well, we're God's called people, and all this destruction came on the city, and Nebuchadnezzar besieged it and broke the walls, and it all fell apart, wouldn't you feel like the God that you worshipped was acting like an enemy to you? He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed his strongholds and has increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. And he has violently taken away his tabernacle as if it were of a garden. He has destroyed his places of the assembly. That's the congregations. God is the one that blew the congregations apart. And if I don't change, and if you don't change, God will blow this one apart. He says, these things will happen, the prophecies of good, if we diligently obey. We have to do that. And we fall short every day. Sometimes I think, when's the other shoe going to drop? You know, I want to be there. I want to make it. You want to make it. But then I look at myself, and it's discouraging. So where are we going to find encouragement? The Eternal has caused the solemn feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. It didn't just happen. God did it. And has despised in the indignation of his anger the king and the priest. Read Isaiah, I mean, Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 and Malachi and see what God says about the priesthood today, the ministry. The Eternal has cast off his altar. He has been an enemy to the ministry, if you will. The altar. Those who take care of the altar. He has abhorred his sanctuary. He has given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Eternal as in the day of a solemn feast. The Eternal has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. Now, Nehemiah and Ezra went out to rebuild the wall after it was destroyed anciently. And God says that there will be those who will be healers of the breach in Isaiah 58, those who will rebuild the wall. And if we have knowledge of that, we need to heal the breaches between us and God. And then we need to begin to heal the breaches in the church and ultimately in all Israel as co-workers with Christ to rebuild His ways because we've not been like Him. We have a long way to go. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn His hand from, from destroying. Therefore, He made the rampart and the walls a lament. They languished together. We've been doing a study in Matthew 5 where we started about the standard of God. He's the one that stretches the line. He's the one that makes the standard. And we fall short of it and fell short of it. So this is what he's done to us. 
Verse 9, her gates are sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The heathen came in, gave us the swine of false doctrine. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The law is no more. What did the leaders of worldwide do? So you don't have to keep the law. What does Jeremiah say to an end-time church? You better keep the law. Her prophets also find no vision from the eternal. Those who would be leaders don't see the answers. They, they don't see why it's happened. They don't know what to do about it. And they don't have a vision for the future. They're not examining the scriptures because they think they're okay and don't need to examine the scriptures. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit up on the ground and keep silence. They don't know what to say. You ask them, why don't you preach prophecy? Why don't you teach us what's about to happen? Why has this happened? they got no answer. They've cast up dust on their heads. They've girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem hang down their heads to the ground. Either they don't have an answer, or they think, in one sense, they have all the answers, and the answers they have are the antiquated views of prophecy that we had 50 years ago, before events on the world happened to help us realize that we didn't have a full understanding and viewpoint of what was going to happen. Yeah, the basic outline of destruction for Israel was there, but we didn't know how this was going to happen. Didn't know this was going to happen to the church. Should have. Would have been tuned to these scriptures, but we weren't. Verse 10, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit upon... Let's see, I read that. They hang their heads to the ground. My eyes do fail with tears. My bowels are troubled. My liver is poured upon the earth for the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and the suckling swoon in the streets of the city. Speaking spiritually now and very soon to physically this nation. They say to their mothers, where is corn and wine? Spiritually we say, where is food to sustain us and cause us to grow? Physically, they will not have corn and wine and those things. Corn and wine both represent wealth and prosperity. Only the rich in those days could have wine. It wasn't common. When they swooned as the wounded in the streets of the city, when their soul was poured out into their mother's bosom, crying on mom's shoulder, What things shall I take to witness for you? What things shall I liken to you, to you O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I equal to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? He says, I fail to find an analogy to apply to you that would be comforting. We're in distress. We're in destruction. For your breach is great like the sea. Who can heal you? I mean, the church is in a perplexing situation. Who can pull us up out of the well? Your prophets have seen vain and foolish things for you. What do you mean by vain and foolish things they see for you? Well, vanity is, you're all okay and, and you're Philadelphians. And it's vain and foolish to say that when all of this is happening because there is no effect without a cause. And if God did it to us, he must have had a very good reason for doing so.
Now I can't, can't see where I was. O vain and foolish things, verse 14. And they have not discovered your iniquity to turn away your captivity. Now he's beginning to give us an answer here. The church, the ministry, has not looked into and discovered the iniquity of the church. Has not discovered our iniquity, our sins, my sins, in order to turn away the captivity. This trouble that we're in as a church can be averted, it can become out of, if we recognize our sins and change. That's the way out of the well. Recognize our sins and change. Hard to do, but we've got to do it. And the pressure will just keep getting greater until we do. But have seen for you false burdens and causes of banishment. They've got the wrong reasons for why this happened. God's telling us right here, I did it. I did it because of your sins, your attitudes, your approach. And they're telling you false reasons for it. All that pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their head and laugh at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? Is this the church that was the only church of God that we were so proud and vain about? Well, yeah, I guess it is, but it sure doesn't look like it used to. All your enemies have opened their mouth against you. They hiss and gnash the teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. We got rid of her. Certainly this is the day that we looked for. We have found, we have seen it. We've accomplished it. Whether it be the enemies of the church or ultimately the enemies of this nation. The Eternal has done that which he had devised. He has fulfilled his word that he had commanded in the days of old. What did he say? Oh, that there were such a heart in them that they would obey me. And he said, choose life. You can choose life or death, therefore choose life. He gave us that. And we as a church chose spiritual death. But we have opportunity for a spiritual resurrection right now. All right, he's done what he said he would do in the days of old. He has thrown down and has not pitied, and he has caused your enemy to rejoice over you. He has set up the horn, the power of your adversaries. Their heart cried to the eternal, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no rest, let not the apple of your eye cease. He says, don't give up, cry, wail, pray, fast, get close to God. Don't give up. Just because you're hanging upside down in a well doesn't mean you're dead. There is still hope of recovery. Arise. Cry out in the night. In the beginning of the watches, pour out your heart like water before the face of the Eternal. Lift up your hands toward Him for the life of the young children that faint for hunger in the top of every street. He called, or they call this the book of Lamentations for a reason. It's a great lament, a sorrowful thing of what has happened. Now, we like to be happy and it's fun to enjoy and, and laugh, but we have to laugh through the tears, don't we? Underneath 
any happiness and joy that we find in life and in each other needs to be underscored by the plight that we find ourselves in. There has to be dead seriousness underneath everything. People might say, well, maybe you're taking this all too seriously. No, I don't think you can take it too seriously. We're in danger of dying, spiritually and forever, unless we do the things we need to do. Behold, O Eternal, and consider to whom you have done this. Don't you know we're your people? Don't you know we're your church? And who have you done this to? The only people on the earth that are in some form or another trying to truly obey the real God of heaven and earth, and you do this to us. Man, what's wrong? Shall the women eat their fruit and children of a span long? Our children are being eaten up spiritually, and in many respects, if they go the way of the world, they're probably going to die there unless God preserves them through into the millennium. If we can teach them God's ways and they're not rebellious, then the chances are very good they're going to be protected through all of this and live into the millennium and have homes and happy marriages and children and all those things that they'd like to have. They'll have that opportunity. But a lot of it depends on our reactions, what we do. We're just going to let it happen? Yes, the women in this country, America, are going to eat their own children before this is done. I can't imagine that. How can a mother kill her child and eat it? I know you can't imagine it as mothers. But God says it's going to happen. And not only that, it has happened in history. When Jerusalem fell to Nebuchadnezzar, the famine became so bad, the women ate their own children. It's happened in World War II, in different parts of this world. It's going to happen again. Shall the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the eternal? Are we going to just go on the way we've been going, brethren? And cause the church to completely die? It's in danger of that. In fact, if the very elect could be deceived, it would happen. These are serious times. The young and old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men are fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have killed and not pitied. You have called as in a solemn day. My terror is round about. So in the day of the Lord's anger, none escaped nor remained. Those that I have swaddled and brought up as my enemy consumed. God started the church very small and dandled it on his knee and swaddled it in diapers and we're supposed to grow up and mature spiritually. But we're dwarfed and stunted spiritually. And God said, that doesn't look like the children I would want. So let's see if we can't remanufacture them a little bit. So that's what we're in, a remanufacturing process right now. First, or chapter 3. I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. I felt it. Have you? I still feel it. Daily. 
He has led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. You know, people say, well, you know, how is this? How could this be? And yet God has drawn the church into darkness, not into light. I think he has begun to shed some light on some of these scriptures, and we're beginning to learn. And we have a great opportunity here as we're learning. Tremendous opportunity. Surely against me as he turned, he's turned his hand against me all the day. My flesh and my skin has he made old. He has broken my bones. He has builded against me, encompassed me with gall and travail. He has set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. Isn't the church wandering in darkness, groping like a blind man? He has hedged me about that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. We're chained in this situation right now, like the rope around your leg in the well. Also, when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. You ever feel that? You're praying and you want an answer from God and nothing seems to happen? This is what we're going through. It gets frustrating to pray and have no apparent answer. God said we'd be in this situation, and we are there. Now we ought to do something about it. He has enclosed my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked, like he's walled me off with concrete from it. He was under me as a bear, lying in wait, and as a lion in secret places. You know, we don't normally think of that, do we? I've been in places where lions or bears were very dangerous to my physical health. And I don't tend to think of God that way. A wounded bear or a wounded lion can be very, very scary. Fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. And he's doing things that should make us fear so that we begin to have some wisdom. He has turned aside my ways and pulled me in pieces. He has made me desolate. We've been torn up into little pieces as a church. He has bent his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow. It's just like we as a church right now have a big red target on our chest. And God is the one who pulled back the bow and released the arrow in us. And he didn't miss, did he? He has caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. I was a derision to all my people and their song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. Now, should we blame God for this? Now, why did he do it? It was because of our lack of diligence and our sins. You have removed my soul far off from peace. I forgot prosperity. We wonder, why don't we have peace? God says he'll bring peace in the latter temple. But we're not there yet. The latter temple has not been put up yet. We're being polished and tried and shaped as stones, hopefully to be a part of that temple when it is erected. But the chipping and the hammering needs to be done now so that that can come together quietly and in peace the way it ought to. So if you're being hammered on, it's because God wants to shape you. People sometimes look at us and, or we look at each other or we look at somebody else and say, why is that person having trouble? Why, they must be sinners. Or they wouldn't be having so much trouble. Well, when we are accused of that, what is our automatic reaction? 
Well, it's not because of sin. Well, maybe it is. Do I sin? Do you sin? Yes, we all do. Now, on the other hand, the righteous also receive trouble. Through much trial and tribulation enter the kingdom, and many are the afflictions of the righteous. So it's really hard for us to judge. You know, you see somebody here and they're having trouble. What is that trouble because they're righteous and they're having affliction because they're righteous? Or are they having affliction because they're sinning? It's hard to tell, isn't it? That's why mercy is such a powerful, weighty matter. It's so that we don't criticize one another and put each other down and assume that someone's sinning. Now, chances are they are. If somebody looks at Daryl Henson and says, well, he, he's having trouble, he must be sinning. How could I deny that? They got the right guy. I sin every day. I try to repent every day. But I find I change very slowly. Very hard to do. Can you relate to that? No. <laughs> it's hard for us. All of us. It's just simply hard to be different than we've been. He's broken my teeth with gravel stones, like you're chewing gravel sometimes. He's made me drunk with wormwood. Let's see, I read that. He's covered me with ashes. And you have removed my soul far off from peace. I forgot prosperity. And I said... My strength and my hope is perished from the eternal. I feel cut off. I feel that God is far away. Well, in some respects, He is. Now, He still numbers the hairs on our head, and He's very concerned about us, but at the same time, He's withdrawn His grace and favor from the church and us in hopes that that will send a message to us and we'll make some changes so that we don't perish. Remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul has them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. All right, here's the reaction God is seeking. He wants us to be humbled by our own sins, by our own faults, by our own weaknesses, and not stand up and crow, we're the best, or whatever. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. This is a very discouraging section of Scripture. But if we remember our sins, we remember that God says He will bless if we humble ourselves, because He says He will give grace to the humble. So in that, we have hope. If we go on in our vanity and in our ego, we have no hope. But if we will humble ourselves before God, there are great promises that He has given us that He will bless us. There is a great deal of hope in that. So what do we do? Do we go on in vanity and ego? Or do we get busy humbling ourselves? It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. You know, we deserve death because breaking God's law is worthy of death. But it's because God is merciful that we are not consumed. We're not destroyed. We're hurting. We're frustrated by conditions in the church and in the nation. 
But God's compassion is still there, otherwise he would have destroyed us completely. He does love us. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We can, we can grasp and be thankful that God has compassion and mercy, and he's not given me what I deserve. Very richly deserve, and that is death, physically and eternally. That's what this boy deserves. And I can only be thankful that he has mercy and compassion on me in spite of myself. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We have a new opportunity every day to have a better day than we had yesterday. We go to sleep. We wake up refreshed. That's why God begins the day at sundown. It's so you can rest and face the awake part of the day with a fresh start, revived, having slept and rested. And you can start that new day out hopefully better than the one before. There's always hope. If I look at yesterday, I'm discouraged. Forget yesterday, let's move on. It's the way we have to be. There's hope in every new day. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore will I hope in him. The eternal is good to them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. Those who will be patient and wait it out and endure to the end, God will be good to. And those that seek him, like buried treasure, he'll do good to them. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the eternal. You know, Habakkuk complained quite a bit about the way things were and why are you doing it this way, God? And then he backed off and realized, I think I'd just better sit on my watch and wait for God to do things. Because screaming at him won't help. He figured he'd better correct his own self and then wait for God. This is a time for patience. It's a time for growth. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Children that are raised with a silver spoon in their mouth or parents who try to give them everything they want are doing those children a disservice. And God is raising spiritual children here. And if he gives us too much, too much blessing, what do we do? We forget him, we get spoiled, and then we let our diligence slack off and we don't really work. Warren Buffett just donated billions of dollars to a foundation. And one of his comments was, I'm giving it to the foundation because you should not leave, you should leave your children only enough to do something, but not enough to do nothing. If you leave them too much money, they'll never accomplish anything. If you give them too many things, they'll never learn. So don't leave them enough that they can afford to be lazy. It is good that a man should both... Uh, no, wait a minute. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Hard times and deprivation are better for us than blessing as human beings as we grow up. Because we have to learn character. We have to learn to work. We have to learn responsibility. Whereas if we have life too easy... We never learn those things. 
Too many parents make the mistake of, well, I'm going to give my kids all those things that I never had. And they spoil them rotten, and the children never learn responsibility, or they have a great deal of difficulty in learning it. He sits alone and keeps silence because he has borne it upon him. He puts his mouth in the dust, if so there be, if so be there may be hope. He gives his cheek to him that smites him. He is filled full with reproach. We, we need to turn the other cheek to God in that sense, don't we? You know, if he smites us on one like he's been talking about here, we should be humble and not become rebellious and resistant to God, but turn the other cheek. You know, if some human being smites you, God says, turn the other cheek. Now, what if God smites you? Boy, I think you'd turn the other cheek even faster rather than becoming resistant, resentful, and rebellious against God. What good is that going to accomplish? But some people do. They begin to blame God rather than... Because he has done this, but he's done it for cause. For the eternal will not cast off forever, verse 31. This is only going to last so long. He says, but for a moment. Seems like a long time to us, but it's not very long, really. But though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. Now we're getting into a hopeful section here. This has been pretty gloomy. But when God says, I'm doing this, and I've done this, and I'm going to do this, and then he tells you to obey, look at yourself, humble yourself, then he says, I'm going to turn with compassion and bless you. So he gives us hope here. Even in the most lamentable section of Scripture in the Bible, he gives us hope. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. It isn't from his heart, my margin says. He does not afflict from his heart. In his heart he loves us. But he knows we need what we're getting right now. To crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth. To turn aside the right of, man, of, right of a man before the face of the Most High. God realizes there's, there's only one way to straighten this world out. That's to destroy most of the population, work with a few, build the right kind of society without Satan there, and then resurrect all these billions of people that die here at the end and have died through the centuries, and then teach them the right way. There's no way even God right now can take the six and a half billion people on this earth and convert them without taking drastic measures to get their attention. And he has taken drastic measures spiritually to get your attention and mine, hasn't he? And still we don't listen sometimes to what he has to say the way we need to. Verse 36, to subvert a man in his cause, the eternal approves not. He's not there to make us fail. He's not there to cause us to stumble and fall. He's doing this to us to cause us to straighten up and walk right. Not to stumble in the dark, but to walk in the light. That's why he's doing this. Sometimes you have to remove privileges from your children or paddle them or whatever. Not because you don't love them and that your heart is kind toward them and, and you want them to be what they ought to be. You have to restrict them or punish them so that they might learn 
how to walk, how to act, what attitude they ought to have. And it takes that. God has to do it to us. Read Hebrews 12. Makes it very plain. So he's, he's not against us. He's doing this for us. Now, it's hard for us to grasp that sometimes. So you don't let the... You don't let your teenager have the car for a month. To that teenager, does it seem that you are full of love for him or her at that moment? No. Very grievous to have the car taken away or whatever you, however you might restrict someone. It's hard to say my parents really, really love me so they took the car away from me. Isn't it? My dad did it to me, and I did it to mine. And I deserved it, and they deserved it. But I didn't think I deserved it at the time. But maybe I learned something from it, I hope. I hope I'm learning something now with what God is doing. He's kind of taken the car away, hasn't he? We don't seem to be able to drive and get anywhere. But he's not against us. Verse 37, Who is he that says, and it comes to pass, when the Eternal commanded it not? How do you go against what God is doing? It it doesn't do any good to resist. We need to humble ourselves and do what he says. Out of the mouth of the Most High proceeds not evil and good. Wherefore does the living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? What right do we have to complain if God punishes us when we've sinned? What do we do when we sin and make mistakes? We destroy relationships with man and God. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the eternal. Let's not complain about what is happening. Let's not complain about the punishment God is putting on us. Let's change And do differently. Search and try our ways. Examine ourselves. And turn again to God. Let us lift up our heart with our hands to God in the heavens. We have transgressed and have rebelled. You have not pardoned. This is exactly where we are right now. God has not yet pardoned and turned his face back to us. He will soon, but he hasn't. In the meantime, we need to be searching our ways and turning to God. You have covered with anger and persecuted us. You have slain and have not pitied. You have covered yourself with a cloud that our prayer should not pass through. It says right here that he is not listening to a lot of our prayers. Now, in an overall sense, he hears some of our prayers. He he hears us when we turn to him with all our heart, with fasting, with prayer. But he is in the position of putting a cloud between. And when there's a cloud between, what do you have to do? You have to work at it to get through. When there's miscommunication between a husband and wife or between a a child and a parent or whatever it might be, don't understand each other, don't understand what's going on, having trouble getting along. It's like there's a cloud between you. What do you have to do? You have to work at it to get back close again, which is a goal and a purpose. 
That's what God expects us to do, is fight through the cloud and find Him. Because you'll find me when you seek me with your whole heart. You, verse 45, you have made us as the off-scouring refuse in the midst of the people. We're just like a pile of dung, he says. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and a snare has come upon us. Desolation and destruction. My eye runs down with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eye trickles down and ceases not without any intermission. It's like we're, we're in a position where if you look at the deplorable conditions in the church and in the nation... There's never any relief. Look at our society today and the world. There's no relief. Till the eternal look down and behold from heaven. So there's no relief until God intervenes and looks down with kindness from heaven. That's when the answer will come. My eye affects my heart because of all the daughters of my city. We look at the sin in ourselves and in others, and it affects us and our feelings. My enemies chase me sore like a bird without cause. They've cut off my life in the dungeon and cast a stone upon me. Waters float over my head. Then I said, I am cut off. I feel cut off from God. Our sins cut us off, don't they? So he says, quit sinning and you can find God. I called upon your name, O eternal, out of the low dungeon. Here's the proper response. Start calling on God. Hide not your ear at my breathing, at my cry. You drew near in the day that I called upon you. You said, fear not. He says, fear not, little flock. I'll deliver you in the New Testament. O eternal, you have pleaded the causes of my soul. You have uh, redeemed my life. O eternal, you have seen my wrong. Judge you my cause. You have seen all their vengeance and all their imagination against me. You've seen everything that's been said about us, everything that's been thought about us. If God consider all this, the lips of those that rose up against me and their device against me all the day, behold, they're sitting down and they're rising up. I am their music. Sometimes it's music to our soul to put somebody else down, isn't it? Wrong attitude, but that's the way it is. Render to them a recompense, O eternal, according to the work of their hands. Give them sorrow of heart, your curse to them. Persecute and destroy them in anger from under the heavens of the earth, of the Lord. See, we are trying to do what's right, and God punishes us for our sin, but at the same time, He's going to turn around and punish all of those who have wronged us. The Assyrian is going to lead the attack against America, for instance, and then God is going to punish the Assyrian for what He did to His people. Now, we need punished as a nation, and God will use... The Assyrian is the rod of his anger, but then they'll get it in the neck because of their attitude toward us. So we can't afford to have a wrong attitude toward each other regardless. Chapter 4. Let's see if we can get through this. I, I'd rather finish this today and I'll have to do this again next week, wouldn't you? So, so get Daryl to hurry. Chapter 4. How has the gold become dim? How has the most fine gold changed? The stones of the sanctuary are poured out in the top of every street. That which we saw as precious and valuable in the church, then poured out on the street, torn down. The precious sons of Zion, com comparable to fine gold, how are they esteemed as earthen pitchers, the work of the hands of the potter? You know, we thought we were pretty good. We thought we were a wonderful church, God's only true church, had a high opinion of ourselves, 
and we thought we were fine gold, how did we become like clay pots broken in the street? Even the sea monsters draw out the breast. They give suck to their young ones. The daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. What does Christ say about those who would say, well, he's delayed his coming, he's not, you know, this thing's not happening right now, and then they begin to hurt each other. We can't afford to do that. So why, why are we not getting sustenance? Even the mammals in the ocean nurse their young. Verse 4, the tongue of the sucking child cleaves to the roof of his mouth for thirst. The young children ask bread, and no man breaks it to them. Hard to find encouragement, strength, truth today. They that did feed delicately or desolately in the streets, they that were brought up in scarlet, embraced dunghills. Maybe you're trying to find the oats and the corn and the manure. That's how bad it's going to get. For the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom that was overthrown as in a moment, and no hands stayed on her. Is this worse than Sodom and Gomorrah? In a way, yes. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Bam, they were gone. No more consciousness of punishment or sin or anything else. But we, we remain alive. And in some respects, our punishment is worse because we have to deal with life. We still have emotions and frustrations and depressions and difficulties and troubles and sins, weaknesses. And we have to live through kind of a constant paddling here for a while. Paddlings get old. For Nazarites were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies. Their polishing was of sapphire. We really looked good to ourselves, didn't we? But it's changed. Their visage is blacker than a coal. That famine is used as a type of us turning dark. We're not healthy in that sense. They are not known in the streets. How many people do you ask, well, do you remember Worldwide Church of God and Herbert Armstrong? You get more negative responses today than you, than you do positives. They've forgotten us. We're, we're gone. They that be slain with a sword are better than they that be slain with hunger. There's the same analogy that he gave of Sodom and Gomorrah. Would you rather just have your head cut off quickly from behind, or would you rather simply starve to death? For these pine away, stricken through, through for want of the fruits of the field. The hands of the pitiful women have sodden their own children. They were their food in the destruction of the daughter of my people. The ministry has chewed up and spit out the people, and our, nation, our leaders in this nation are using us as their peasants to get themselves rich, spiritually and physically. The Eternal has accomplished His fury. He has poured out His fierce anger and has kindled a fire in Zion and has devoured the foundations thereof. Church has just fallen apart. If the foundation crumbles, the whole building falls down. The kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy should have entered into the gates of Jerusalem. We wouldn't have believed it. And when Herbert Armstrong was flying around the world talking to 
leaders of nations, no one would have dreamed that it would all fall on its face, would they? Wouldn't have thought it. Who'd have thunk it? For the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests that have shed the blood of the just in the midst of her. A lot of it falls on my head. A lot of it falls on the ministry's head. Sorry, brethren. I'm sorry for what I did to the church. Sorry for my part in it. If we're going to change anything, it has to start at home. If the ministry will not accept responsibility for what has happened to the church, then there's not much hope. So all I can do is say, I'm sorry, I apologize, didn't mean to hurt any of you. I'm trying to change. Please have mercy on me, a sinner. They have wandered as blind men in the streets. They have polluted themselves with blood, so the men could not touch their garments. They cried to them, Depart you, it is unclean. Depart, depart, touch not. When they fled away and wandered, they said among the heathen, They shall no more sojourn there. The anger of the Eternal has divided them. Is the ministry divided today? You bet it is. A lot of them won't even speak to one another. He will no more regard them. They respected not the persons of the priests. They favored not the elders. Didn't give the respect and authority people should have. that should have been there. But then if the ministry and the priests is despicable, it's hard to give that, isn't it? As for us, our eyes as yet failed for our vain health. And our watching, we have watched for a nation that could not save us. They hut our steps that we cannot go in our streets. Our end is near. Our days are fulfilled. For our end has come, spiritually on the church and physically on the nation. We won't be able to go in our streets. What did we read last week somewhere in there, Jeremiah, about the passages being cut off? Our persecutors are swifter than the eagles of the heaven. They pursued us upon the mountains. They laid wait for us in the wilderness. That'll be fulfilled when Revelation comes around and Satan sends an army after his church, or God's church, in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the, uh, the, the anointed of the eternal, was taken in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the heathen. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, that dwell in the land of Utes, or Uz, uh, should be Utes in pronunciation, or particular area. There are a lot of Edomites apparently living in Utes somewhere, place called that. wonder where that would be. Won't get into it. The cup also shall pass through to you. You shall be drunken and shall make yourself naked. We expose ourselves with our sins, don't we? The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no more carry you away into captivity. He will visit your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will discover your sins. If God is going to get done discovering our sins and punishing us, then he's going to turn his attention to those who have persecuted us. And he promises us here, this is the last time. What we are going through right now, today, is the last time that the church is going to suffer this. Never going to happen again. We'll go from here if we make the changes and humble ourselves into a place of safety, 
into the kingdom of God, and no more will this come upon us. This is the last time we have to go through repentance and humbly. Now, I think that's good news. I'll be glad when I'm told, you no longer ever need to fast, you'll be with the bridegroom. I'll be happy when these fasts of the months that we have started keeping from Zechariah 8 and 9 are turned into feasts of joy instead of fasts. I don't like to fast. Don't enjoy it a bit. Hard on me. I mean, it's good for me physically, but it's hard on me. Hard on my attitude. Don't like it at all. I like food and drink. Isn't it nice to know this is the last time we have to go through this? Never again. It'll be over, and joy and happiness will come from God. Remember, O Eternal, what has come upon us. Consider and behold our reproach. So we cry out, God, look at us and what's happened. Please have mercy. Our inheritance is turned to strangers, our houses to aliens. We are orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are as widows. Our inheritance spiritually was turned over to heathen and strangers. And now we find in America today, our homes are being occupied by heathens and strangers from south of the border, north of the border, east and west, being taken away. We are orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are as widows. We have drunken our water for money. Our wood is sold to us. Nobody would have thought 40, 50 years ago that there would be such incredible profits in selling water. But our systems are so bad that Americans have to buy bottled water. Our wood, our fuel, is sold to us. Our necks are under persecution. We labor and have no rest. Just work, work, work. And spiritually, isn't that true? Don't you get tired? Oh, I have to force myself to pray. I have to force myself to study. I have to force myself to do good. I have to force my mind to think on positive things instead of negative things. I have to force myself to say the right things instead of the wrong things. But it's natural and human to do the wrong things and think the wrong things. Tough. I do not want to live forever like I am. I'll pass. Thank you. If the kingdom of God is like boot camp on earth, I don't want any part of it. But I believe him, and I trust him when he says it's going to be better, and there'll be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more hurt for us. It'll all be over. We have given the hand to the Egyptians and to the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. We're going to be willingly, as a nation, go into captivity to the world to get the things that we have been used to in this country. We want food and drink, and it will be taken away. Our fathers have sinned and are not, and we have borne their iniquities. Read Zechariah 1. Servants have ruled over us. There is none that does deliver us out of their hands. We don't have public servants anymore in this country. We have dictators who rule over us. We got our bread with the peril of our lives because of the sword of the wilderness. That's true spiritually of God's knowledge and truth in this confusing wilderness of doctrinal frustration that afflicts the church today. And it's hard to sort it all out and get it all right. 
very difficult to do. Some issues seem to have three answers, which is the correct. It's hard. Uh, verse 10, our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. Unhealthy, in other words. They ravished the women in Zion and the maids in the cities of Judah. Princes are hanged up by their hand. The faces of elders were not honored. Getting that way, the ministry did it to itself in a lot of ways. And after a while, people don't honor the ministry that God has put there because of abuse. And we certainly abused. They took the young men to grind, and the children fell under the wood. The elders have ceased from the gate, the young men from their music. The joy of our heart is ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. Oh, we danced at the feasts. We thought we were great. Everything was wonderful. We're going right on into the place of safety in the kingdom of God. And then, like we ran into a brick wall. And all that merriment and joy and dancing spiritually ceased. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us that we have sinned. God says, let no man take your crown. But we were setting our own crown off. Falling off our head. For this, our heart is faint when we realize what we've done to ourselves and why this has come upon us. For these things, our eyes are dim. Hard to see now. It's hard to have vision. It's hard to push for the future. It's hard to see the answers. Used to, we could encourage our children. You know, there's going to be a millennium by 1975. And everything will be happy, happy. I didn't think I'd ever have children. Now I'm a grandpa in this life. But it's a lot closer than it was then. But after you have so many false starts and so many times where you think this is the gun lap and it's all going to be over and you get frustrated enough times, it's hard to encourage yourself and it's also hard to encourage your children because they see prophecies that didn't come to pass when we thought they would. So our eyes are dim, hard to see, hard to be encouraged because of what we're going through. Because of the mountain of Zion, which is desolate, the foxes walk upon it. That was an Edomite. Christ even called Herod a fox. The Edomites, those children of Esau, are going to prevail over the sons of Jacob here at the end. And the Edomites spiritually have done so in the church. You, O eternal, remain forever. Your throne from generation to generation. Ah, here's hope. In spite of the trouble we're going through, God is there and will always be there. And he will smile on us again. He will bless us after this is over, when the paddling stops. Paddling will stop when our attitudes change and we seek him with our whole heart. That says, he says we'll find him and he'll quit paddling us and he will bless us. Wherefore do you forget us forever and forsake us so long time? Seems like interminable, doesn't it? Seems like it'll never end. But it will. Turn you us to you, O eternal. And we shall be turned, renew our days as of old. That is our hope. That is what we're working for. And it will eventually happen. But right now, you have utterly rejected us. You are very angry against us. If you're going to have an end of the lamentation, I guess that's a good way to close it. But there are some hopeful things in there. They said, we've got to do something about it. And when we turn and our attitude changes, then the blessings will come.